So there's intractable problems emerging in the tech industry until we figure out how to get cooperative system building down. Good evening. I'm Mark Hoxton, and this is Late Confirmation from Coindesk for Tuesday, September 25th. This is part two of our special episode from the Concordia Summit in New York, an annual conference that takes place alongside the United Nations General Assembly, with a heavy focus this year on blockchain. I've had the pleasure of interviewing several influential people from the blockchain space at this conference. And today, we're going to tackle a question that some listeners may feel is settled, but many others will still want to hear addressed. Namely, why a blockchain? Blockchains are useful, no doubt, but for what? Definitely for creating censorship-resistant digital currency systems that allow strangers on the internet who don't trust each other to transact. But as we've seen with Bitcoin and Ethereum, while these networks may be robust, they aren't in practice always efficient, fast, or cheap. And they're certainly not easy to scale. So why use a blockchain for anything else, particularly if you're at a corporation? Why are these distributed systems any better than a good old centralized SQL database? We'll find out what the leading lights of the industry have to say in response to this eminently fair, if not exactly brand new, question. But first, a word from our sponsor. Master Financial Technology Online with the 10-week Oxford FinTech program. Interacting with an international cohort of business leaders and over 60 guest experts, you'll gain a practical introduction to key financial technologies and their business applications. Find out more at OxfordExecFintech.com. First up, on our Why Do You Need a Blockchain for That challenge, it's the inimitable Preston Byrne, independent consultant, lawyer, entrepreneur, and man about town. So the other day I had a problem with my Bitcoin wallet, so I called Bitcoin's customer support line um, at 1-800-BITCOIN, except I didn't because it doesn't exist. Right. Right. So the reason that it doesn't exist is because absent, of course, the enormous bug that was found in, in the code last week and, uh, and disclosed, uh, in the ordinary course of events with a system like Bitcoin, um, you bake in all of the user permissions at the start, you then stand it up, you hand it out there to the public internet, and in most of the time, it's proven to be pretty robust um, to attack and to changes that are unauthorized, which SQL is almost certainly not. So that, I think, is the, the defining characteristic. It's basically a very, very robust public API for financial transactions, which can then be applied to other things that you might not want to be looking at all the time, but that you might want to make sure that in the event, you know, in the ordinary course, the only people who are allowing or are permitting these transactions to change or permitting these assets to change hands are people with private keys, right? Really, really simple. And you've got an audit trail and all the rest of it, and you can automate most everything else. So that's kind of what I see. And Gemini coin, I think, kind of touches on that. There you have this. That, uh, for, for those unaware, that is the stablecoin project uh, that is um, being launched by Gemini, the uh, exchange run by the Winklevoss twins. Yes, so or the Gemini dollar, I think they would greatly resent having it be called Gemini coin, so let's call it Gemini dollar. But there you have a system. We have a programmable dollar that's secured by public key cryptography that runs on a public blockchain, and that public is Ethereum for the time being. It could be its own public blockchain in the future, a public blockchain with permissions, 
And then you have this big open API that everyone can hook into, and that can form the basis of other types of reduced uh, reduced trust financial transactions with these kind of funky new assets that'll come out as more and more things become digitized. Bringing another perspective, I spoke with Jalak Jobanputra, a founding partner of Future Perfect Ventures, an early stage VC fund in New York. Well, there are two parts of that. One is, yes, the Bitcoin blockchain um, hasn't proven to be scalable yet. Um, just like the internet in 1994 and 1995, uh, couldn't handle a lot of data. Um, I first got into the sector back then, into the internet sector, and I remember working with uh, investment bankers who never used email because they thought it was just quicker to pick up the phone and talk to someone. Um, and and. Obviously, we know what's happened to now. To be fair, sometimes it is, but, but yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> That's point. true. Uh, we're, we're going back to those days. The, uh, the point taken. <laughs> but um, so, so I, I think to, uh, you know, the, these blockchains, including the Bitcoin blockchain, is, is go- they're going to continue to uh, work on the technology, continue to scale. I mean, what makes the Bitcoin blockchain differentiated is its uh, focus on security, that censorship resistance that you mentioned. Um, and I know the, the core developers don't want to compromise on that as they scale. There are also other blockchains that are emerging that may compromise on, on security but offer scalability. And, and, and so I've always been a believer that we're going to have many different blockchains that will serve different purposes. Uh, one of the areas I'm excited about is also the interoperability of, of these blockchains. So I see a mesh of, of blockchains out there, um, and they'll be working in the background uh, without most of us even know that we're interacting with them. Um, and, and so the second part uh, of the question, what, what we've seen happen with databases is how insecure they are, how easy they are to hack, because you have one single point of failure. Um, and uh, so Blockchains offer the opportunity to distribute the data without personally identifying the data uh, and piecing it back together. Um, and, and that's what's so exciting. And, and as someone who is very global um, and I invest around the world, uh, one of the things that we're seeing is a proliferation of people uh, and businesses uh, interacting with each other. Uh, in a way that they didn't before, because our, our borders weren't as open. Um, there weren't um, as, as many people around the world doing business with each other. And, and so maybe it mattered less that we had this trustless network because we trusted everyone. You know, it's like in, 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 in the mid-20th century, uh, people went to their local banks. They uh, did things on a handshake deal. Well, we live in, in a different world now that I may want to buy something from a vendor uh, in the middle of Rwanda um, and, and may want to give that person my business. But I, I want to know that I can trust that I'll get paid. Um, and uh, Or I want to work with someone who has an ethical supply chain. And uh, I, I want to have that independently verified. And, and so I think it just opens up ways of, of doing business and then who we do business with that uh, having data in these proprietary silos uh, uh, just doesn't allow us to do. And then there's the added element of security. Um, and you look at the healthcare space, right? Our, our, our uh, 
healthcare data is all over the dark web uh, because of all the hacks that have happened. So a lot of these companies that hold our data have proven or have shown that they are not capable of holding it secure or do not want to. And, uh, and having an option uh, to keep our data secure while transacting with who we want, I think is a win-win for the global GDP. Here's what York Rhodes, co-founder of Blockchain at Microsoft and a program manager on Microsoft's blockchain engineering team, has to say about the usefulness of decentralized systems for any use cases outside cryptocurrency. So I think, you know, first off, um, the concept of decentralization is not well-defined. Um, and I think if we look at that in a cryptocurrency perspective, it's exactly what you define, which is we have certain protocols that are designed so that the network value can be protected, even though you don't know who's on the network, and that some of those participants may be malicious. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, the, the baseline around public, uh, public blockchain and what many of the technologies were designed to do. Um, but what's interesting is even if you go back to the um, the Bitcoin white paper that was published by you know this this person Satoshi Nakamoto, or people, uh, male or female, uh, or other, um, and you look at the ref the academic references in that paper, it tells you what's the interesting thing about this technology. It's brought together many different academic studies and disciplines in a way that actually creates something that's new. And that new thing that it creates is this ability to have a completely uh, a network that is not governed by trusted parties um, and a network that you can actually store uh, what I like to call digital uniqueness or some people call digital scarcity because scarcity drives value right from an economic perspective um, in the open essentially um, and so that actually is a wonderful invention. Um, and I think what we're seeing now from an enterprise perspective is the evolution of, okay, how do I understand what that means um, to my enterprise? Um, and why would I do something that looks like that, right? So the, the leap of faith, first of all, is that you know, this thing is real, right? And that's the first thing you have to get over. Um, that you know you can actually do something and it stays up and it's you know not the core has not been hacked right from the perspective of something like a blockchain, uh, Bitcoin for example, um, and so you can you can make the assumption that digital uniqueness is now possible, right? And that from an enterprise perspective has a lot of context, um, and so then you say well if I want to create something that's digitally unique in an ecosystem, um, what would that be? Um, and it could be anything from tracking an individual piece of inventory, whether that inventory is ad inventory in a, in a digital context, um, or a software license, or a license uh, for IP or rights or royalties in a digital context, um, or whether that inventory is physical inventory, um, like an Xbox, um, you know, or a Surface, or mice, or you know, a Mac, or what have you. Um, and if I can take those value propositions around distributed trust among parties um, that are already contracting with each other anyway, and extend it with this new technology that lets me now have for those parties um, that are well-defined, which, you know, if you, if you wind back a couple of sentences ago that where we had an undefined number and uh, identity of parties in a permission context 
where we do business today, we have well-defined parties um, in most cases. Um, and we govern those relationships today through um, contracts and reconciliation and typically massive teams of people that are dealing with reconciliation, whether it's a financial context or uh, a supply chain finance or, or any context, right? It's Reconciliation essentially means compare what you believe is the truth to what I believe is the truth and usually split the baby, right, and say, okay, we can't come to agreement, so we'll just, you know, say we'll meet in the middle, right, do a negotiation, and both parties walk away, either happy or unhappy, right, and, you know, it depends on, depends on your context. Um, they're happy they didn't have to do the work, but unhappy that they couldn't actually agree on what the actual data was. So in the context of a distributed or decentralized technology where you can actually have a single source of truth among those trusted parties, that is actually a value proposition, uh, for blockchain in the enterprise. It's different than a public blockchain value proposition, but it leverages many of the same technologies. And do they sacrifice some efficiency or some level of speed or some, do they pay extra for this? So I think, um, you know, it's an interesting question when we start to ask questions about how do you compare um, speed of doing some type of transaction uh, between parties on a um, shared blockchain network versus the historical way of doing it. And if you add up uh, all of the pieces and components of that, I would argue that uh, they're not that different. Um, if you purely look at um, something that's very hard to define, which is transactions per second, um, you know, I would argue that uh, Amazon.com, right, one of the, or Alibaba, um, or you know the other or Taobao, for example, um, don't run on a single protocol to get the transaction speeds that they need to get in order to do the volumes of e-commerce transactions that they do. It's a multi-layered stack of different technologies that contribute to getting to that type of scale. And I think if we what we're doing today is we tend to um, attribute transactions per second and the ability to hit those types of volumes with a single low-level core protocol of technology and not all of the layered things that you would actually put on top of that in order to drive scale. So just as we shouldn't necessarily judge Bitcoin by just the base layer and ignore things like the Lightning Network, what I hear you saying is that we shouldn't assume that these uh, enterprise protocols are going to be the only thing going on uh, and, that, and that, you, that the enterprise are going to solely rely on that. That's right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I use e-commerce as an example because I, I teach e-commerce at NYU in a master's program. And the complexity of those systems is dramatic, right? And it is not a single protocol that delivers that complexity. It's a multifaceted, layered you know, web architecture of many, many different facets of technology from different organizations, um, mostly proprietary organizations today, that actually create the scale and speed and possibility of doing, you know, standing on the corner and uh, ordering a cab through Uber or Airbnb or what have you. Late Confirmation is brought to you by Oxford University's Said Business School. You can now study fintech entirely online with Oxford University's Said Business School. The 10-week program gives you the tools you need to build the future of transactions and commerce. You'll explore emerging technologies that will disrupt marketplaces and financial services. 
and examine the state of the industry and plan disruptive intra and entrepreneurial interventions. Throughout the program, you'll be exposed to key ideas, principles, and frameworks from CEOs of leading startups, corporate leaders, and instructional leaders at the forefront of research in the space of future commerce and transactions. Find out more at OxfordExecFintech.com. And last but not least, Brian Bellendorf, Executive Director of the Hyperledger Consortium, explains that corporations may not be so different as we think from the anonymous, mutually distrustful actors on the internet who find Bitcoin useful. I mean, people should realize that enterprises everywhere deal with these questions of trust all the time. And uh, I, you know, when you're doing business across international borders or even within your hometown, how do you know that the other party is going to make good on a commitment that they've made to you? How do you know that uh, when you put something out there as a as a uh, as a business that you know, and, and you're working on a partnership with somebody that, and you're parking your assets with them, or you're proxying your transactions through them, that they're not going to screw you, right? And we in the tech industry have learned really well how to build big centralized databases, and um, you know, and that might be fine for social networks it might be fine for um, ride hailing in a in an urban area uh, but it's not okay for core financial markets it's not okay for the healthcare industry who have fought tooth and nail to you know I mean there have been various times when a gmail of healthcare records could have emerged and I think it's a good good news that one did not <laughs> because such an organization would have so much power right that it would make looking at uh, like owning our email uh, records you know trivial in comparison right um, so there's intractable problems emerging in the tech industry until we figure out how to get cooperative system building down. And that's what blockchain technology for the enterprise is really about. How do we build cooperative applications that don't depend upon a central entity because there's so many so many use cases, so many business environments where trying to trust a central database, putting all the keys to the kingdom in one set of hands and giving that entity the power to screw us, no matter how much external auditing we can do, no matter how much we try to caution you know, uh, protect ourselves with insurance, with, uh, um, uh, you know, third party auditing, that sort of thing. Um, there's still ultimately limits to what we can do unless we pursue blockchain technology. And there'll be places where it emerges first and is worth the price because a, a central database is fast. A central database can be updated, you know, very quickly. Um, uh, you know, Facebook gets updated five times a day, famously, right? Um, uh, for, uh, but uh, um, uh, that's it's still something we need to do in, in certain markets. Markets. And and we'll see it start where the pain is most sharply felt, uh, 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 such as in financial markets and, and healthcare. Ultimately, I think it, it comes down to to every industry finding those essential business processes that really need to be multi-stakeholder processes that need to be turned into blockchain networks. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. For more blockchain news and data, check out Coindesk.com where you can also subscribe to our newsletters, including our new Institutional Crypto, a newly launched weekly newsletter dedicated to institutional investors. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Coindesk. And if you're looking for me, I'm at Mark Hochstein on Twitter. That's at M-A-R-C-H-O-C-H-S-T-E-I-N. If you're enjoying the show so far, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's our episode for today. We'll have more insights from these conversations in the coming episodes. Thanks to Jalak Jobanputra, York Rhodes, Brian Bellendorf, and Preston Byrne for making the time. 
And most of all, thank you for listening. For Coindesk, this is Mark Hockstein saying trust but verify, even if it's on a blockchain. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.